If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. On the 16th of October, 1962, U.S. President John F. Kennedy was made aware of the presence of Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba, just 90 miles away from the shores of the United States. Spotted by an American high-altitude U-2 plane just two days earlier, the ballistic missiles had been placed in contravention of earlier promises made by USSR leader Nikita Khrushchev. The 13 October days that followed are some of the most dangerous in modern history, as the world stood on the brink of mutually assured nuclear destruction. I'm Eleanor Evans, and in this new History Extra series on the Cuban Missile Crisis, we'll be looking back from the roots of the confrontation to the legacy of the crisis, and of course, the pivotal 13 days at its centre. The placement of the missiles sparked a period often regarded as the most dangerous stage of the Cold War, in which the post-war superpowers of the US and the USSR battled over ideology and nuclear dominance. But just how close did the world come to the precipice? How much was the standoff due to the macho posturing of political strongmen? And how much of its resolution was down to diplomatic luck or skill? And crucially, were any lessons learned? Over four episodes, you'll be hearing from three historians each tracking the crisis from the perspectives of Cuba, the Soviet Union and the United States. In this first episode, you'll be hearing from all of them. Giving us an insight into the Cuban perspective, we have Alex von Tunzelman, historian and author of Red Heat, Conspiracy, Murder and the Cold War in the Caribbean. Our expert on the USA is Mark White, Professor of History at Queen Mary London and the author of several books on the American presidency and the Cuban Missile Crisis. I also talk to William Taubman, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Amherst College in Massachusetts and the author of a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Khrushchev. 
He will be letting us into the Soviet Union's thinking on all of this. In this first episode, our experts will be setting the scene, telling me more about the roots of the crisis and the key figures at the centre of this nuclear standoff. But the story doesn't start with Kennedy, Khrushchev and Castro. To begin to understand this crisis, we first need to head back to the 19th century to explore the history of colonial links between Cuba and the US. Here's Alex von Henselman. Even at points during the 19th century, there were quite serious inquiries from the US to Spain at that point, who you know was the kind of colonial owner of Cuba, about buying Cuba off the Spanish or somehow acquiring control over it. Um, and of course, you know, when you get to the mid late 19th century, there are independence attempts by Cubans, um, independence wars, and eventually at the end of the 19th century, a Spanish-American war, during which the ownership of Cuba is passed over from Spain to the United States, ultimately, and the United States then, at the beginning of the 20th century, installing um, a military government to run Cuba. So, you know, there's a very, very strong colonial history here to understand, and that's very big, certainly in the Cuban mindset, and how that's understood. And people like Cespedes, the leader of the original uh, Cuban independence revolt, and especially Jose Marti, the leader of later independence revolts against um, American and Spanish control, really become kind of national heroes in Cuba and have a huge influence on how people like Fidel Castro would perceive the United States. And what about the US perspective on this colonial relationship? Over to Mark White. I think a key moment in terms of US-Cuban relations is the 1898 war, when the US goes to war with Cuba's colonial ruler, Spain, defeats Spain, and at the end of that war establishes basically a protectorate over Cuba. It reserves for itself the right to intervene uh, militarily in Cuba to protect its strategic and economic interests, and also establishes a naval base at Guantanamo. So from that, so even though in 1898 Cuba is no longer ruled by Spain, it, nor is it fully autonomous either, because the US in effect does does establish a protectorate. And what you see after that are regular, um, intermittent US interventions, military interventions, in Cuba in the early part of the 20th century. And I think it's useful to put that in terms of the broader sweep of US foreign policy, because in the 20th century, the US um, creates an informal empire, what historians have called an informal empire in Latin America. So it's not like the British Empire. It's so that the US doesn't, uh, generally speaking, formally annex countries, but it is the dominant hegemonic power in Latin America. And if you look at US policy in Latin America, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, there's just a catalogue of military interventions and occupations in Nicaragua for 20 years, in Haiti 20 years, so it's not just Cuba. So, so uh, US policy in Cuba is part, of, uh, part of, a, of a broader policy. I mean, that changes somewhat in the, in the 1930s when President Franklin Roosevelt introduces his good neighbour policy. But basically, America fashions an informal empire in Latin America. And, you know, you can see that continuing in the 1950s once you get to the Eisenhower presidency, because uh, early in the Eisenhower presidency, Eisenhower authorises the CIA to intervene in Guatemala and to overthrow a government that it, uh, the Eisenhower administration, perceives to be too left-wing and too close to Moscow. 
So the US relationship with Cuba is part of that broader pattern of the creation of of an American informal empire, a US informal empire in Latin America. As Mark just mentioned, the foreign policy of the United States under both President Truman and Eisenhower's administrations was greatly influenced by the desire to contain overly left-wing and, above all, communist regimes abroad. So what was the picture, ideologically, in Cuba in the mid-20th century? Batista, the dictator Batista, becomes the dominant figure in Cuban politics from the 1930s onwards. And so the US seems to have a fairly close relationship with Cuba. It has extensive economic interests in Cuba, By the 50s, you have American organised crime. The mafia are very involved in Cuba, so you have that connection. So Cuba's perceived as a country that has reasonable relations with the US, even though it's not a model democratic country, uh, which is what the US ideally would have liked in the context of the the Cold War and the struggle with the Soviet Union, battle for hearts and minds. And, uh, you know, Castro tries to seize power in 1953, is imprisoned, comes back later in the 50s and is able to establish power by the start of 1959. That changes the the whole equation uh, because the issue then for the United States is how do we respond to this new revolutionary leader? And they hope he's going to be a, a, a democratic leader and he's going to hold free elections. But on the other hand, they're concerned that he, he is in fact left-wing and, and is going to turn out to be an ally of Moscow during the Cold War. In terms of how the Cubans perceive this, Mark's absolutely right to mention a few key events, such as the fall of the government in Guatemala in 1954. So this was a situation where Jacobo Arbenz, the leader of Guatemala, was perceived by the US as being too left-wing, although actually he was pretty moderate. And there was a disinformation campaign by the CIA, all sorts of things going on, and eventually that government was overthrown. And crucially, a person who was there at the time was a young Argentine doctor called Ernesto Guevara, better known to history as Che Guevara, who would, of course, become extremely important later in the Cuban Revolution. So it's important to understand that a lot of people who became key in the Cuban Revolution were seeing these American uh, interferences firsthand. And much as the US was talking about wanting you know, lovely representative democracies in Latin America. In fact, whenever one of those came together and elected a government it didn't like, the US, in fact, would intervene and make sure that a right-wing military dictatorship was installed. So there was definitely a gap between what was being said and what was being done. And that was very strongly perceived really across Latin America and the Caribbean at this time. There was quite a strong tide of anti-American, anti-imperialist feeling um, among young Caribbean people and sort of in Central America and Latin America very much as well. So, yes, I mean, Cuba had been, I mean, when Fidel Castro was kind of coming up through this, you know, he was a young man from a pretty well-to-do middle-class family. Um, And I think it's really important when we're trying to understand his character to understand that Fidel had a Jesuit education. Um, I think this is important because it really forms his character much as later on, of course, he would profess to be some atheist because that's what you had to do to be a good communist later on. He actually, his Jesuitical streak was extremely strong in terms of how he thought about the world morally um, and, you know, ethically. Um, And really growing up also, he was not at all left-wing. And you can see in the early movements, such as Mark mentioned, 1953, um, the 
26th of July uh, attempt to seize the Moncada barracks in Santiago de Cuba, which was kind of an attempt to uh, bring down Fulgencio Batista's government, but really, I mean, absolutely founded almost immediately. The ethos of that movement was not communist whatsoever. You know, these were nationalist movements um, really aimed at rejecting American control, which was very much seen by about you know, being behind Batista and the organised crime and all of this stuff that Cubans felt was making their lives very miserable. He was indeed imprisoned for that. He was released a couple of years later and went to Mexico, where he and his brother Raul, who had also been imprisoned, did meet Che Guevara there in Mexico. And really, that's the beginnings of this Cuban revolutionary group. In Mexico at that time, there were lots of uh, would-be revolutionaries from also all places in Latin America and indeed the world hanging out and getting together. But I think it's quite important for the background to all of this to understand that even, you know, at this point, even later on, Fidel was not left-wing. He wasn't, he certainly wasn't a communist, but he was not even left-wing. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, during these early times, Raul Castro became very interested in socialism. Fidel was not convinced at all. And in fact, you know, in the early years of Fidel hanging out uh, back in Cuba, because these guys all kind of went back to Cuba together to try and start a revolution, and, you know, then spent ages hiding out in the Sierra Maestra, these mountains in southern Cuba, trying to foment revolution. And Fidel was repeatedly assessed by uh, the KGB agent as being very unreliable and possibly, in fact, a CIA um, asset, um, which, in fact, he may well have been. Uh, there are rumours that he was. Um, his politics at this time were nationalist and, if anything, somewhat right of centre, um, quite consistently. So, in fact, you know, this, he was, this was not a case of somebody who was ideologically coming from the left at all, although there were people like Raul Castro who were, but it's a real mistake to think Fidel and Raul ever really agreed with each other. They had a very fractious relationship for indeed their entire lives. Um, interestingly, later on, their positions would change completely. By the 70s and 80s, it was Raul actually who became quite interested in rapprochement with the US and Fidel who was much more strict on not doing that, but early on, the other way around. So, you know, the, this Cuban revolutionary movement was you know, quite uh, politically diverse, actually, but certainly what united it was very much nationalism and anti-Americanism. So that was really where these guys were coming from at this point. We'll return to Castro and the aftermath of the Cuban Revolution in just a moment. But first, I want to pick up on that anti-Americanism that Alex just mentioned, which was far from unique to Cuban revolutionaries. Two decades before the crisis, the USA and the USSR had been allies in the defeat of Nazi Germany. Yet by 1959, as Castro was toppling the corrupt Batista regime, the superpowers of East and West were reaching a crisis point in their battle for ideological and nuclear dominance. Nikita Khrushchev had been the effective leader of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union since 1954 and had overseen the USSR's so-called arms race with the US, as the two behemoths struggled to match each other in missile development and the new space age. Here's William Taubman, introducing us to the third player in the crisis to come. Khrushchev in the early 60s saw America as his arch rival. Uh, he saw it as a militarily superior country. He saw himself competing with it economically. He wanted to ease the Cold War. But the means he chose for easing the Cold War were ironic. In the words of a former Harvard Sovietologist, Adam Ulam, what Khrushchev said was, in effect, be my friend or I'll break your neck. And therefore, he pushed hard on Berlin, 
he pretended to be building up military strength. He was determined to compete with the United States in the third world. So he was that he, he saw us that way, but he sent a kind of mixed message, which was very difficult to decipher accurately. More on that mixed messaging later. But for now, let's return to Cuba and to Castro's early years in power. Here's Alex again. When he comes in, so, you know, at the beginning of 1959, um, the first government that Fidel Castro installed was indeed slightly right of centre, very moderate government. And actually, that was quite interesting because once again, people were kind of like, oh, okay, so this is not communism, it's a sort of nationalist movement. Um, That government didn't last terribly long. um, And, you know, Castro started to clearly take more of the reins of power himself. He was certainly somebody who never shied away from uh, taking power personally, really. Um, And, you know, but it's really interesting to look at those first couple of years, you know, 1959, 1960. And what seems very clear from the Cuban side is that actually there was a lot going on between those, really the most important two people there at that time are uh, Raul Castro and Fidel Castro, and they have very different opinions. Fidel is really far more powerful than Raul, but the two of them, you know, did have very different takes. Fidel was not into the Soviet Union and communism. Raul really was. Later, you have Che Guevara becoming more important, and he as we'll probably discuss later, was much more interested in Chinese communism. Um, so at that point, you have three different directions where everything is being pulled in different uh, different ways. But at this point, it's quite interesting to trace. So Fidel went to the US, for instance, in 1960. Um, I think it was the American Society of Newspaper Editors who invited him. Um, and he tried to meet Eisenhower, actually. But Eisenhower found a very urgent golfing engagement so that he wouldn't have to meet Fidel and instead sent Richard Nixon, who was his vice president. And Richard Nixon, I think, is also a name in this story who really probably does deserve to come in for quite a lot of criticism because he took such a strong kind of vicious line that, you know, all Latin American uh, dissenters must be some form of communist, that he was kind of primed really to misunderstand Fidel. And that meeting didn't go particularly well, um, wasn't very positive. But during that trip, Fidel also met several other people. He voluntarily submitted to three hours talking to the CIA, for instance, um, in a hotel in New York. And the CIA agent who interviewed him came away from that saying, not only is Fidel Castro not a communist, but in fact, he's a really strong anti-communist fighter. So they thought they could use him. And we know that this must have, at some level, been for real rather than just some kind of show, as everyone later tried to present it was, because... When Fidel was on this tour, he went down to Texas and actually Raul Castro was so worried about what was happening that he flew from Havana to Texas and the two of them had a massive stand-up fight in their hotel room um, because Raul thought Fidel was getting too close to American power. I think that was in an FBI report, um, which, you know, obviously somebody was listening through the wall, probably in the next room. But we can see there was a lot of tension between those brothers and between, you know, what was going on generally in Cuba at the time as to what direction it would take. And really, if you look at the record... Fidel quite clearly repeatedly made overtures to the US to get involved. He also talked to the IMF, the International Monetary Foundation, about funding Cuba, but was very unhappy with the proposals, all of which were very much designed to shore up American shareholder power on the island, which was something he couldn't really accept. So he was making a lot of attempts to try to reconcile with the US and to try to make that relationship work. But because this was happening at a time of, you know, this, uh, Mark has absolutely rightly decided, you know, this sort of febrile anti-communist atmosphere that Eisenhower was frankly not immune to, the policy could not adapt to this idea of a kind of 
you know, fairly liberal, middle of the road, uh, Latin American independent uh, government. So in a sense, the people like Raul Castro started to have more sway because they were there saying, but the Soviets will open their doors to us. Why don't we talk to the Soviets? And when the Americans were repeatedly closing the doors, that argument started to have more weight um, because there was in a bipolar world, as the Cold War was by this point, there wasn't another option. So when Castro comes to power, Dwight D. Eisenhower is president of the United States. So, so the question is, how, how will the Eisenhower administration respond to, to the Castro revolution? And in a way, that was always the central issue in 20th century American foreign policy. You know, how, how should the United States respond to revolution, whether it's Russia in 1917 or China in 1949 or Cuba in 1959? And there were always concerns in the Eisenhower administration, uh, which intermingled with hopes that he might be uh, a leader that they could deal with. The very, the, 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 the very con- concrete reasons why the Eisenhower administration came to view Castro as an enemy, uh, and one of these was the fact that uh, Castro nationalised American companies, uh, oil refineries and so on. And it's in response to that that the Eisenhower administration introduces economic sanctions in 1960. And then in the final weeks of the Eisenhower administration, Castro removes a, uh, a number of American diplomats from the U.S. Embassy. And so in response to that, Eisenhower closes the U.S. Embassy. So by the time John F. Kennedy becomes president of the United States on the 20th of January 1961, the relationship with Castro has already fallen apart. No diplomatic relations exist. The U.S. has imposed economic sanctions. Castro's taken action that damages U.S. economic interests and is beginning to establish uh, a closer relationship with the, uh, with, the, with, the, with the Soviet Union. As early as 1960, Eisenhower, the Eisenhower administration has definitely defined Castro as an enemy because beginning in 1960, the Eisenhower administration begins secret planning for the overthrow of Castro. Uh, so the CIA begins to, which had been itself created in 1947, begins to plan for uh, an, an operation which would involve Cuban exiles, Cuban emigres, so Cubans who were unhappy with Castro and had fled Cuba, to use them, train them, train them, equip them, fund them, and send them back into Cuba to stage a coup d'état and to overthrow Castro and to to install a government which the US is happier with. So that's one thing the Eisenhower administration is doing uh, in in its final year. Secondly, and we didn't find out about this till the mid-1970s, but secondly, secret plotting began for the assassination of Castro. Uh, we, we know about this because of a Senate investigation in the mid-1970s, which showed that at least eight plots had been devised between 1960 and 65, in the early 60s, to kill Castro. And uh, this planning began during the Eisenhower administration. It's very hard to prove the extent of presidential knowledge because of a CIA practice called plausible deniability, which which meant that even if a president knew about an, uh, an, uh, an assassination attempt, executive action, as it was known euphemistically, that was never put down in writing so that the president's knowledge was plausibly deniable at a later point. So, you know, by the time you get to... Uh, the end of the Eisenhower administration, you've got planning for the overthrow of Castro's government, what will later become the Bay of Pigs invasion during Kennedy's time. You have planning for the assassination 
of Castro. And uh, you also have economic sanctions and you also have diplomatic isolation. So all, 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 of, the, all of those are policies that Eisenhower bequeaths to Kennedy. And we do have the record of the meeting between Kennedy, the incoming president, and Eisenhower, the outgoing president, on the 19th of January 1961. So this is a day before Kennedy's inauguration. One of the interesting things about Eisenhower is... Basically, in the 1960s and 70s, he was regarded by most presidential historians as inept, not in control, dominated by individuals such as the Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles. Starting in the 70s and certainly by the 80s, uh, what was known as Eisenhower revisionism was in vogue. And this was a total rehabilitation of Eisenhower's reputation. And this has continued through to recent scholarship. And in 2017, there was a poll of U.S. scholars in which he was rated the fifth greatest president in American history. And part of the argument for that is, you know, eight years of peace and prosperity, which actually is is actually statistically inaccurate. I mean, there were three recessions during the during the during the Eisenhower years. But but part of the reason historians praise him is because they say, you know, he he kept the peace during a very tense, dangerous period in the Cold War, diffused dangerous Cold War crises such as the one in Berlin in 58, 59. But it seems to me, if you look at his, his his record in Cuba, it doesn't support that view of him as a temperate, moderate, skilled, judicious leader. Kennedy has been criticised a lot by historians since the 1980s for what are perceived as his hardline policies towards Castro. But most of those policies have their roots in the Eisenhower years. So if you're going to criticise Kennedy, you should criticise Eisenhower as well. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored? Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. At this stage, with the Cubans poised to explore an alliance with the Soviet Union, Kennedy as a new president who had inherited a plan to topple Castro, and Khrushchev ready to exploit any advantage he could gain over his great rival, I want to take a step back and hear more from our experts on the three extraordinary figures at the centre of these events. First, you'll hear from Alex on Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro was a fairly extraordinary figure. I mean, he was very physically large and imposing, also a very brilliant speaker, extremely charismatic. His brother, Raul, while smart, had nowhere near really the charisma of Fidel and very sort of single-minded and messianic. And I think the kind of consistent things throughout his life really are this incredibly strong, unshakable belief in Cuban nationalism. And really in a kind of extending from that a sort of I think one American intelligence report that was really quite good and perceptive once called it his confused doctrine of international Castro humanism or something like this, which was sort of his idea about 
how the world should work outside the preserve of empires. Looking at his whole life, I genuinely think that although he would eventually, of course, become one of the world's foremost communists, I don't think ideologically he was ever particularly taken with communism. I think it was a vehicle for his nationalism very largely. Um, And I think had the situation been different, he could easily have swung a different way. Um, on that front. But very, very much, you know, an extremely strong nationalist, um, consistently an extremely strong figure in that regard. And very kind of, you know, a a, a sort of fascinating individual. I think he absolutely was extremely ideologically driven, you know, as opposed to various other dictators in Latin America and indeed around the world. Um, he never really engaged in things like cults of personality. He was really quite shy. I mean, if you went to Cuba um, during the Fidel years, as I did a few times, um, you would not walk around and see his face everywhere. You know, if you go around North Korea, there are statues of the Kims on every street corner. This is not the case in Cuba. He never really promoted himself. It was about the revolution. And of course, after Che Guevara died, Che became this very useful um, symbol uh, during Che's life, he was far too dangerous for Fidel to allow him anything like that prominence. But after he died, his, of course, incredibly um, recognisable image became a sort of global icon for that. And the Cuban Revolution did use that in its propaganda. But so he's a man who is sort of interesting because there's this duality of this person who was quite shy and private on one hand, and yet enormously bold and pushy on the public stage. Um, Certainly a hell of an ego on him and very sort of, very much kind of embodying that kind of swaggering machismo, perhaps that we kind of, you know, might think is a bit of a trope in Latin American history. You know, very big guy, very much prepared to fight and risk his life at various points. Um, You know, extremely brave and careless really with with himself and perhaps as we may discuss later getting into the missile crisis also potentially quite brave and careless then with Cuba um, as time went on but a really swaggering fascinating figure um, on the world stage. Uh, Kennedy's elected president in November 1960 becomes president in January 1961 but I'll backtrack and just give uh, just flesh out our sense of him as a a leader in the way that Alex did with uh, Fidel Castro Kennedy uh, is from Massachusetts. He is uh, from a very wealthy family. His father makes a, uh, Joseph Kennedy makes a fortune on the unregulated stock market in the 1920s, so that by the 1930s, he's one of the 10 richest men in America, uh, richest Irish Catholic on the face of the planet. And and therefore, JFK and his his siblings go to elite prep schools. He's, he's, He's elected to Congress JFK in 1946, to the House of Representatives, 1952, to the to the Senate, 1956, he nearly becomes the Democratic Party vice presidential candidate. And as early as late 1956, I mean, he's still in his 30s at this point. By late 1956, he's, he, he, he's decided he's going to run for the presidency in 1960. In terms of, like, who he was, what his character was like, I mean, that's something I've been grappling with for 30 years. And it's, it's a really, I think it's actually a really hard question because he's very charming, and very likable, if you were to know him person, personally. Uh, but at the same, t- the same time, there's something about him that's very sort of private. And in his own life, he compartmentalised it, you know, between different groups of friends and family and so on. So I think in a way he's... I mean, if you go to the Kennedy Library and look through lots and lots of documents and there are colossal amounts there, you still feel after a while, like, do, do I really know him? So he's definitely affected by his relationship with his parents, uh, 
He's closer to his father than his mother. He's definitely affected by his father in terms of his private life. Uh, one of the big issues that historians have discussed with Kennedy is his character. Uh, in 1991, uh, uh, historian Thomas Reeves wrote a book called The Question of Character about JFK, in which he base- basically argued that Kennedy's character was highly flawed, um, that he lacked a moral centre, that it was excessively uh, macho. Um, and you could see this in his private life uh, because he was a philanderer of spectacular proportions and that was unaffected by his marriage to Jacqueline Bouvier in 1953. And that he, he got this code of behaviour from his father, who was just the same, uh, and encouraged his sons uh, to behave that way and to sleep around. He, he actively advised them to do that. Um, seems extraordinary, but it was the case. So uh, the public were unaware of all of that. I mean, today it would be a huge scandal, but that goes on whilst he's president. So he, he's got, he, he has, you know, the public side to him, where he comes across, across very smoothly, very winningly. And then he has this extraordinary private life where it is like looking at an early Roman emperor. What he's brilliant at, and this seems like uh, maybe a hyperbolic statement, but I, I can't think of any other leader in a Western democratic context, uh, even right up to today, who was as good as he was in terms of crafting image. His, his father had actually been a Hollywood producer in the 1920s, making pretty awful you know, in an aesthetic, artistic sense, awful movies, but they made money. But the Kennedys were always very, very immersed in the world of Hollywood. And there's a story of JFK visiting a friend of his uh, during the early 1940s, the early days of World War II. And his friend recalls how JFK would just, would actually sort of study Hollywood stars. So what is it about Gary Cooper when he enters a room? What is it about him exactly? The way he looks, what he's wearing, the way he moves, the way he talks that grabs people's attention. And so he studied that sort of thing assiduously. He knew a lot about fashion. You know, if you're, uh, if you're a guy and you're wearing a suit, how wide should your lapel be? Should you have two buttons? Should you have three buttons? He was this sort of one-man image guru. And in terms of his dazzling image, I thought that was a function of the presidency. But it actually goes all the way back to his first campaign in 1946. If you read accounts of that, he's seen as a sex symbol as early as then. He's just a very attractive man. He's seen as a war hero. He's also seen as something of an intellectual because he published a book in 1940 called Why England Slept and then Profiles Encourage, a second book in, in 1956. So that's one of the things he brings to the presidency is this extraordinary image. And it's the key reason why he becomes president. He's behind in the polls during the 1960 campaign against his opponent, Richard Nixon until the first television debate, famous, iconic television debate, where he came across so much better than Nixon on television, not on radio, but on television. The day after, he moves ahead in the polls and stays ahead. So I think you can argue that Kennedy's sort of cinematic televisual image is a key reason why he becomes president. So it's really important. I mean, even in our country, you think of the development in politics and the emphasis that some like Thatcher placed on image or, or Tony Blair placed on image and spin, who really in many ways goes back to, to John Kennedy, and he's better than anyone at it. Um, in terms of foreign policy, I'll just finish with this in terms of background on Kennedy. I think the biggest myth about Kennedy as a, as a leader, and this myth is created after his assassination, is that he's a sort of liberal hero president in the tradition of Franklin Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. Um, progressive. That's not how he viewed himself for most of his life and career. And he actually viewed himself as a moderate, sort of centrist Democrat, a bit like Bill Clinton in the 90s, 
but not on the liberal wing of the party, so not close to people like Adelaide Stevenson or Eleanor Roosevelt. He's quoted as saying in the 1950s, I'm not a liberal, I never have been. He he basically viewed liberals as being kind of sanctimonious, excessively moralising, uh, impractical, and also he's affected by Adlai Stevenson's defeats in the presidential election in 52-56. He's the Democratic candidate in 52-56. Uh, he's a liberal and he's trounced by Eisenhower. And so I think just Kennedy just viewed liberals as politically naive. You can't win elections from the left. You have to be in the centre. And I think maybe during the final year of his life, that does change. And he does shift to a more progressive politics, a stronger stand on civil rights, interested in reducing Cold War tensions. Um, but that only, that that only comes later. And, you know, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of what he brings to the presidency, he's pretty hard line. Um what a key moment here is his time here in London, actually. In the late 1930s, his dad, Joseph Kennedy, is Franklin Roosevelt's ambassador uh, to Britain. So John Kennedy spends a lot of time here and mixes with, in particular, with the British upper classes. And he's at Harvard University at that time doing his undergraduate degree. And he decides to write his undergraduate thesis on the British appeasement of Nazi Germany. And he has access to documents because of his dad. Uh, he submits the dissertation at Harvard in 1940. It's well received. And then in the summer of 1940, it's published as, as his first book. He's only 23 years old. It's called Why England Slept. You can still learn a lot about John Kennedy's subsequent foreign policy, in a way, including towards Cuba, uh, from, from that book. He, he, what he basically argues is that the British failed to respond robustly enough to Hitler, uh, that appeasement was a failure, and that democratic leaders needed to... Uh, have military power. They needed to spend a lot of money, money on, on the military and to be, have the guts to stand up to aggressive dictators. When he gets into Congress, as the Cold War starts, he puts that logic in the context of the Cold War. The US must stand up to the Soviet Union and any other communist dictators and must be tough and uh, uncompromising. So, you know, every time a bill comes in, uh, before Congress about whether to increase military spending, he always supports it. So he's got a pretty hardline ideology. And you can still see that in the 1960 campaign when he runs for president. And so in the 1960 campaign, he makes the argument that the US has fallen behind the Soviets in the, in the Cold War and in the arms race, which was not the case. The US was a lot stronger militarily in terms of nuclear weapons anyway. And he also takes a very strong stand on uh, Castro in Cuba. Uh, he makes the argument that the Eisenhower-Nixon administration had lost Cuba to the communists in 1959. Elect me president, he says, and I will take strong action to get rid of him. And he actually releases a statement during the campaign, which sounds a lot like the later uh, Bay of Pigs invasion. He says, we need to use anti-Castro Cubans to you know, overthrow Castro. We know that there were that Eisenhower gave Kennedy two secret national security briefings during that 60 campaign. One was in July, one was in September, where Eisenhower's CIA director, Alan Dulles, privately briefed Kennedy on sensitive national security issues. And if you look at Dulles's notes, uh, at least for one of those meetings, it's clear that Dulles uh, informed Kennedy of the planning for what later became the Bay of Pigs use Cuban exiles to overthrow Castro. So it seems that Kennedy took that information given to him privately and used it publicly to make the case that he would be tougher than Nixon in dealing with Castro. And that, I think, will influence the early part of his presidency when he does indeed decide to try and overthrow Castro at the Bay of Pigs.
I think something that's really fascinating about this story historically and something I tried to foreground a bit looking at it is that you've got two sets of brothers. You've got Fidel and Raul Castro in Cuba and in the US you've got John F. Kennedy and R.F. Kennedy, uh, Robert F. Kennedy, so Jack and Bobby if we were close friends to them. And I think that's quite crucial that both of these sets of brothers have quite complex, interesting, nuanced relationships with a lot going on. I think the Kennedys were probably more united than the Castros at most points, but the Castros did when the chips were down, unite very strongly as well. Um, And I also think there's a word that's come up a few times already and I think is very key, actually, to understanding some of this psychologically is macho or machismo that we've mentioned a few times. And I think, you know, between both sets of brothers, this was quite an important value, um, feeling that that was sort of part of it. There's perhaps a lot of this behind the Cold War generally. But in these particular relationships, there really was. And I think when we look at Kennedy going into the Bay of Pigs, I think one of the reasons he... You know, Mark has described absolutely correctly that he was, in fact, you know, not of, you know, progressive at all on foreign policy at this point. He was very much a tough talker. That's entirely correct. Um, And I think part of it also, though, is something that sort of seems to happen quite a bit when um, leaders come into office from should we say, a sort of more moderate progressive position and are immediately faced with the tough guys of the Pentagon is that they try and look tough alongside them. Um, and that's partly sort of feeling quite challenged by those very tough-talking military guys. Um, and, you know, we will, I'm sure, now talk about the Bay of Pigs, and one thing that happens is that Kennedy has given those plans, which indeed were largely created under Eisenhower, very, very soon after he's come into office, he's presented with these plans for the invasion of Cuba with this mixed force of Americans and anti-Castro-Cuban exiles. And he misunderstood those plans quite badly. One of the problems with his misunderstanding of it is that he read this military assessment that said the chances of success are fair. He understood that to mean quite good. In fact, fair is a military designation that is one grade above poor and is in fact quite low. But it's that sort of machismo of coming in and thinking, have to do this, have to go ahead, have to jump quite soon, and not really stopping to ask the questions because not wanting to look weak, wanting to look very strong um, against communism and against these rebels. You've already heard what comes next. A disaster for the US at the Bay of Pigs. More on that shortly. But first, let's hear from William Taubman on the shrewd yet unpredictable character of Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. He was a peasant. He was born in a peasant family. His mother was illiterate. His father was barely literate. He had minimal education no more than a year or two in a church school in his native village of Kalinovka. Uh, He was smart and shrewd, but he was also, in the words of the man who designed the monument at his grave, that's Ernst Niezwiesny, Niezwiesny said Khrushchev was, quote, the most uncultured person I've ever met. He was diagnosed by the American Central Intelligence Agency, who were asked to prepare a sketch of his personality as hypomanic. And what that meant was that he was he was thinking fast, he was moving fast, he was acting fast. And, and to use the, the actual language of defining hypomanic, he engaged in, or he imagined grand schemes. He had racing thoughts. He did not think things through. And lest you question whether we can trust a CIA diagnosis, I can tell you that Jane Thompson, 
who was the wife of the American ambassador to Moscow at the time, Llewellyn Thompson, told me later that when she was flying to the United States in September 59 with Khrushchev and Mrs. Khrushchev, Mrs. Khrushchev turned, pointed at her husband and said to Jane, he's either all the way up or all the way down. A sort of version of bipolarity. What else can I tell you? He came to power by using his um, indomitable energy, by working very hard, by getting close to Stalin. Stalin, unlike uh, Stalin, did not see him as threatening, unlike some of his other lackeys whom Stalin exterminated. Uh, and that helped Khrushchev to survive Stalin and to succeed him because the other rivals for Stalin's succession uh, also misunderstood him, uh, underestimated him. Khrushchev, to, to summarize it, in effect played the fool in Stalin's court. He was always telling jokes. And as he later put it, Stalin regarded me as his pet, which the Russian word is lubimchuk. So it was a combination of smarts, hard work, energy, and in effect leading others to underestimate him. And you've already spoken about how he regarded America. Can we say a little about how you regarded his opposite number? I suppose, how did you regard Kennedy? Well, Kennedy was much younger and better educated and more sophisticated and better dressed and all of these things that went along with a well-to-do rich uh, American president. I think Khrushchev at first was intimidated by that, but I think he came to see Kennedy as weak. This was based on a couple of things. One, the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba in which the Americans supported Cuban exiles trying to overthrow Castro, but did not back up their support with air cover for the intervention. And hence, the exiles were crushed on the beach at the Bay of Pigs. And the second sign to Khrushchev that Kennedy could be pushed around was their summit meeting in Vienna in June 1961. We have the record of that summit, and it's really painful to read particularly because Kennedy had been warned in advance by his main advisors on Russia not to get into ideological debates with Khrushchev because that was what Khrushchev would be good at. And Kennedy ignored that advice and got into such a debates and Khrushchev bullied him and pushed him around and Kennedy felt he had been pushed around and bullied and confessed afterwards that it was one of the worst things he'd ever undertaken or undergone, and he would now have to prove to Khrushchev that he was stronger than the impression he'd left at Vienna. As you just heard, the April 1961 attempt by a group of Cuban emigres with the backing of the US government to invade Cuba at the Bay of Pigs and topple Castro was a disaster. President John F. Kennedy told a confidant that the failed invasion had marked, quote, the most excruciating period of my life. His brother Robert fumed that JFK would now be, quote, regarded as a paper tiger by the Russians. The Bay of Pigs set the stage for the Cold War to enter its hottest period yet. Next episode, we'll explore how Cuba, the US and the USSR responded to the disaster leading to Khrushchev's fatal decision to deploy nuclear warheads in Cuba and move ever closer to that 13 days that pushed the world to the brink. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast was written and researched by me, Eleanor Evans, and produced by Brittany Colley. Thanks to my experts for this episode, Alex Bontanzelman, Mark White and William Taubman. Additional checks by Rob Blackmore.